We come this morning to Romans chapter 11. We have resumed our series in Romans last Lord's Day by looking at that very difficult and perhaps at times confusing passage of Romans 11, 1 to verse 32. And, and this morning we come to what is arguably the greatest doxology in the entirety of the scripture. Um, a doxology is different than a benediction. Um, a doxology is God's people praising him for his greatness and his majesty, for something about who he is. And a benediction is God pronouncing his blessing on us. We find dozens of doxologies and benedictions in the pages of the New Testament. Often, we find them at the very end of whatever epistle we're looking at. Um, it's sometimes the final word in whatever letter that Paul or the Apostle John wrote. And, and yet here we find what is almost without a doubt the greatest doxology in Scripture— and it's not at the very end of the book, it's at the very end of the doctrinal section of Romans. Once we conclude this, we will move into the applicatory section of Romans from chapter 12 to 16. The Apostle Paul will turn and take everything that he said in, in chapters 1 through 11 and he will apply them to the life of believers. Uh, he has given us a massive amount of doctrine in chapter 1 through 11, and there's really only one exhortation sprinkled in there because he wants us to understand the importance of Christian doctrine. He wants us to understand how it's God's truth that, that works deep into the souls of his people. And then he wants us to understand here this morning how the reception of those precious doctrines ought to um, redound to God's glory in praise from his people. And so we're looking this morning at just four verses and a passage of scripture I am sure all of you know very well, but I want to encourage you to have your copy of scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning, Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 33, and we're looking down to verse 36, Romans eleven thirty-three to 36. Now the apostle, having set out that mystery of the plan of God's redemption of Jew and Gentile, that glorious process by which he gathers together in one the true Israel of God, now cries out, O oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, in his 1994 book, God in the Wasteland, a book that you should read, God in the Wasteland, David Wells, um, great theology professor of the 20th century, made this striking statement. He said, the fundamental problem 
in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. And his Christ is too common. Wells will go on in that book and he will say the problem in the Christian church in 1994, and I will assure you this morning it's the great problem in the church in 2023, is that there is a weightlessness in the way, of, the way Christians speak about God. They speak about him in trite ways. They, they speak about him in weightless ways. Eric Alexander reflecting on David Wells made the point that so much of our portrayal of God or talk of God is trite and weak. It's trite and weak. By the way, usually in the churches where that talk is trite and weak, there are multitudes of people because the talk is trite and weak. And Alexander says we have so marginalized God that he becomes inconsequential in our life. Now that's a striking statement when we consider who God is. Um, our Westminster Shorter Catechism gives us that marvelous definition of God. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He's infinite. He's contained by himself. He's eternal. He has no beginning and no end. He is unchanging. He is perfect in himself in all of his ways. And when the scriptures speak about this God, they speak about him in terms of his weight, his glory. The, the word for glory is kavod in Hebrew. It, it denotes a weightiness, a heaviness to him, a majesty about how we ought to speak of him. And when the Apostle Paul comes to what is the end of the doctrinal section, in the greatest book in the Bible, he comes to speak of the majesty and the weightiness of God, and he cries out in adoring wonder. Notice verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, I want us to consider this morning as we look at this doxology, three things I want us to consider first. Uh, the adoring praise for the greatness of God's incomprehensibility. Adoring praise for the greatness of God's incomprehensibility. Then I want us to consider the humble praise for the greatness of God's self-sufficiency. And then I want us to consider the exalting praise for the greatness of God's glory, God's incomprehensibility, his self-sufficiency, and his glory. Well, notice as Paul has ended this section and he has set out that great mystery about how God is gathering together in one, Jews and Gentiles, that glorious process of the inclusion of the elect Gentiles and the re-inclusion of the elect Israelites into one body, into the one church. He now turns and it's as if he takes his eyes off of what is earthly, what is before the eyes of most people and he directs them upward to the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God, and he begins to offer him adoring praise. Now keep in mind, as we look at this first section, keep in mind that this is the great apostle who had been caught up into the third heavens. This is a man who said that he 
He saw and heard things that were unutterable. But when that one comes to reflect on the greatness of God, he begins to open his mouth in adoring praise for God's incomprehensibility. Incomprehensibility. Now listen carefully. When theologians talk about the incomprehensible God, they don't mean you can't know anything about him. Paul has just taught us 11 chapters of deep truths about the true and living God, about his work of redemption, about the way that he justifies the unrighteous. He has taught us about the mysteries of sanctification. He has brought in the mysteries of predestination and election. And he has now told us in redemptive history how God is gathering together his people from Jews and Gentiles together in Christ. And so when, when theologians speak about the incomprehensibility of God, they do not mean that we can't know anything about him. They, they mean that we will never know those things about him in any sense that mirrors his infinite greatness. Um, we only know what he reveals to us. I remember as a very new Christian, and yet one who had read a lot in a very short period of time, a friend of mine had just read a work by John Owen, and he came over to my house and he said, you know, I just read in Owen where he said, if you could amass all the theological knowledge about God from the scriptures and the totality of your life, and you could amass all of the theological truth that God has breathed out in his word, that would be less than a drop in a bucket about the truth of who God is. And I remember being angry because I thought I knew a lot. Because we think we know far more than we do. And what the apostle is doing here is he is telling us that there are depths to the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God that are unsearchable. You know, when you watch a documentary about nature, my wife and I just watched one about the avalanche at Lake Tahoe in 1982 and listening to the way in which those who experienced that devastating avalanche talked about it sounding like there being a monster under the snow. The power of creation, the depths of the ocean, the power of a volcano. We are, we are, we are astonished by the power of creation. When we think about what's in the very depths of the ocean, we don't even know. We don't even know what's in the depths of the ocean. And yet we are astonished when we learn about the power and the majesty of creation. How much more ought we to be astonished at the power and the majesty, the wisdom and the knowledge of the infinite God? Notice what Paul does is he begins with adoring praise. He, he cries out, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. It's as if the great apostle who knows more than probably any other living person on the planet by way of direct revelation in his day, more about God than anyone else understands that he knows but a tiny fraction about who this God is. He understands that what he has revealed is a revelation of both the knowledge and the wisdom of God. 
those precious truths about how God has devised a way of justification. So that as he says at the end there of that section in chapter 3, he says that God is, because of Christ crucified, God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Or you think about him taking us up to that high mountain and showing us the glories of that Adam-Christ parallel in chapter 5, how God has devised a plan by which all men are represented either by Adam or by Jesus. The majesty, the wisdom of God's knowledge in, in, in shaping this perfect plan of redemption that covers all of human history. And Paul says, oh, the depths. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. John Murray, professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, said this, knowledge refers to God's all-inclusive and exhaustive cognition and understanding. You know, I, I... rub shoulders with a lot of men that have PhDs in theology and probably more than 50% of them want everybody to know that. I had someone recently tell me that, you know, I needed to call him doctor. It's a very small man that demands a title. I'll just tell you that this morning. Um, um, we, We know nothing as we ought. We know nothing of God like we may think that we do. We could study every theological work ever written. It would be ontologically impossible for you to do that, but if you could, and you could do that, your knowledge would still be nothing. It is finite. It is small. My knowledge is finite, and it is small. You know, I was speaking with some friends this week who are very, very fine pastors and theologians, and we were talking about, in glory, we will be learning and growing. When I was a boy, I remember every, people would say, well, when we get to heaven, we'll know. Maybe not. We're still going to be finite. We're not going to become God. We're not going to merge into the infinite. And the point Paul's making is that the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. It's impossible for a finite mind to grasp infinite wisdom and knowledge. And so, again, Murray said, knowledge refers to God's all-inclusive and exhaustive cognition and understanding. Everything that he planned from all eternity. Think about this right now. There are eight billion-some people on this planet right now, and the infinite God knows every thought, every word, and every action of all eight billion people at the same time, and he knows it comprehensively in light of every single thing he's doing in time and eternity. That's amazing. That's who Paul is saying we ought to praise with adoring praise and wonder. And can I say this this morning? If this is dull to you, there is something terribly wrong because that ought to fill our hearts with an overwhelming sense of God's grandeur. No, it's impossible. It's impossible to stand at the ocean and to look out and not be just overwhelmed with a sense of the grandeur of the ocean or the Grand Canyon or any other great natural thing. And yet Paul is saying, turn your eyes off of those things and look at the God that has made them all. 
and look at the glory and the grandeur of his knowledge, the riches of his knowledge. Murray says wisdom refers to God's arrangement and adaptation of all things to the fulfillment of his holy design. Everything in this world, the way it works, the sun rising, the sun setting, the way in which the constellations are in the sky, every single created order was designed perfectly according to God's wisdom for God's holy purposes. Uh, My friends and I, as we were talking about things that we grow in as we're sanctified and, and in heaven will we grow in our appreciation of food. You know, God ordered the, the, the world of food to represent something of his wisdom, um, the taste, the, the nutritional values. And he did that so that we would enjoy those things even in a fallen world and we would give him glory for his wisdom. You see, God did these things to display his knowledge and his wisdom so that we would praise him for that. But more than just the created world, Paul is reflecting in a very real sense on everything that has just gone before us in the book of Romans. How could God, how could the infinitely holy God devise a plan to redeem sinners that deserve judgment, who have nothing in them to commend them to God, who have no way to redeem themselves? How could could that happen? And God has unfolded those things recurrently in the pages of scripture, and Paul is reflecting on the glory of the God. who would send his own eternal son who is God to stand in the place of sinners to take the judgment that we deserve to atone for our iniquities to reconcile us back to himself freely by grace and Paul is looking at even the eternal purposes of God in in God's electing and predestinating purposes of mercy and choosing his people before the foundation of the world and Paul is saying oh the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God how unsearchable are his ways When we look at the cross, we see all the attributes of God coming together, his justice being poured out on the Son for my sin and your sin. When we look at the cross, we see the mercy and grace of God being extended to sinners who need that mercy and grace. We see his power. We see his wisdom. We see a display of every one of his attributes coming together in Christ crucified. And the point is, we ought to look at that and we ought to say with Paul, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways. Who could have devised a plan so perfect? I know for sure I couldn't have, and I know for sure you couldn't have. But the infinite God in the councils of eternity determined to display his attributes, especially in the work of redemption, so that we would praise him in adoration. Now that means, as we grow in our doctrinal understanding, as our minds are expanded theologically, the proper response is praise to God for his greatness and the unsearchableness of that greatness. Um... John Calvin, in his very John Calvinist 
way, says, whenever we enter on a discourse respecting the eternal counsels of God, let a bridle be set on our thoughts and tongues so that after having spoken sober, soberly and within the limits of God's word, our reasoning may at last end in admiration. Admiration. Let us bridle our tongues. No, people say, I, I don't believe in a God like that. It doesn't matter whether you do. That's who he is. Let us bridle our tongues because this God deserves the adoration and the praise of his creatures and all of his creation. This is the one who in Jesus Christ said that if you don't praise him, the rocks will cry out. Inanimate creation will praise him. On Judgment Day, the psalmist says in Psalm 97 that the trees will clap their hands when he comes in glory. So that if animate image bearers will not return glory to him, the inanimate creation will do that. Now, number two, and related in a very real sense, Paul's doxology calls us to humble praise for the greatness of God's self-sufficiency. Notice verse 34 and 35. Um, here the apostle is quoting Isaiah 40 verse 13 and loosely Job 41 11. And he says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that it may be repaid? What Paul has done is he's gone back into the pages of the Old Testament and taken out these great truths about the greatness of God's self-sufficiency. Theologians call this the aseity of God. God needs nothing. He is complete in himself. He is infinite in his perfections. He does not change. He doesn't learn from his creatures. He doesn't gain anything from his creatures. We give nothing to God. He gives everything to us. No one counsels him, and no one knows what he's doing unless he reveals it. And Paul is telling us and teaching us that the great problem with fallen man is pride. The great problem in my heart and your heart is pride. And the proud heart thinks that we have everything sufficient in ourself. And there is only one being who is sufficient in himself. And it is the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God. Who has known his mind? Who has ever counseled him that it should be repaid him? And Paul is teaching us that the right response to receiving the truths that God has revealed to us and those truths from his mind, and that is metaphorically speaking, those truths that he has breathed out in his word that he has taught believers, the proper response is for us to offer him humble praise. Lord, you know all things. Lord, we are nothing. I remember hearing a sermon 20 years ago by a minister who pastored a church full of very successful uh, men and women, doctors, lawyers, politicians, and, and he, he was preaching on, he was preaching on that, that uh, petition in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And he said, he said, you know, maybe you're one of those scientific types and you think, you know, I don't need to pray for daily bread. I work hard. I use my mind. I've met people that have verbalized this. I, I worked hard to get where I am. I have what I have because 
I've done this. And, and I don't need to pray that God gives me daily bread. And this minister said, the problem is, the problem is, you can't even get up on your legs and walk to the refrigerator to get your next meal unless the infinite God who gives you life and breath and all things enables you to get up, your heart to beat, your legs to move, to go to that refrigerator and get the food you want. Because no one has given to God and everything that we have has been given to us by him. And what that ought to do, listen carefully, what that ought to do is make us the most humble people. By the way, the more we learn, the more humble we should be. Because the more we learn, the more we should realize what we don't know. The more we do grow in knowledge, the more we recognize how dependent we are on that knowledge coming from outside of us. And it comes from the living God who makes his mind known to his people. You know, what this means, too, for you, if you're a believer and you have received God's revelation and you have, you have poured over the scriptures and you have, you, have, you have received the truth that God has revealed um, in the pages of scripture, what that means is that the simplest Christian, the simplest Christian who just knows enough of the scriptures knows more about the created universe than the most knowledgeable atheist who can't even solve the most fundamental problems that philosophers and scientists have been wrestling with for millennia. Sinclair Ferguson likes to say the, um, the, the simplest believer doesn't know everything, but he or she knows something about everything because he or she knows the one who knows everything. That's, that's really what Paul is teaching us, that we ought to offer humble praise to God. Lord, why would you reveal your truth to me? Instead of saying, you know, I'm not sure I like that. I'm not sure I like what's in the Bible. Why would you reveal that? Why would you instruct someone like me? Why would you be merciful to me? Why would you redeem me? Why would you make known something of the riches of the Lord Jesus to me? Why? Why me? because we don't work for it. We can't work for it. We don't have anything in us to merit it. And Paul is praising this God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways, who has known his mind, who has been his counselor, who has ever given him anything that it might be repaid to him. So we are called to offer him adoring praise for his incomprehensibility, we are called to offer him humble praise for the greatness of his self-sufficiency. And third, we are to offer him exalting praise for the greatness of his glory. This is sort of the summary verse of the Bible. Someone said to you, what is the scripture all about? Let's read together here what Paul says in verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. He is the Alpha and He is the Omega. He is the beginning and the, He is the end. If He did not plan it, if He did not create it, if He did not do it, it did not happen. And if He did not do it for His own glory, He would be unfaithful 
to his own self-sufficiency and the greatness of his knowledge and his wisdom and his perfections. From him and through him and unto him are all things. Listen to this. I love this. Sinclair Ferguson. You all know Westminster Shorter Catechism question one. I'm sure you could rattle it off here. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Ferguson says God's chief end is to glorify himself and enjoy himself forever. What is an exposition of verse 36? God's chief end is to glorify himself. That's narcissistic. Yes, it is. There's only one being that can do everything for his own end and his own glory and a display of his own perfection. And that is the infinite God. And if he did not do that, he would deny himself and give his glory to something less than him. We need to meditate on this often, often. It is not only right, it is good, and it is worthy of praise that God does everything to display his glory. What does Paul mean when he says, are all things? Uh, One last quote, Charles Spurgeon. This is absolutely beautiful. Every page in human history however stained by human sin, has nevertheless something of God's glory in it. All the calamities of nations, the falling of dynasties, the devastations of pestilence, plagues, famines, wars, and earthquakes, all work for the eternal purpose and the glory of the Most High. From the first human prayer to the last mortal sigh, from the first note of finite praise onward to the everlasting hallelujah, all things have worked together for the glory of God and have subserved his purposes. All things are of him and through him and unto him. Now that means that we don't need to freak out when things happen in this world that are frightening, that are unsettling, that are confounding to us, because we can have our hearts settled in the fact that God has planned it all, that he is upholding it all, and that he's working it all out for his own glory. You know, this is the summary statement of the Bible. To him, be glory forever and ever. Now, we may not know how it all works out for his glory. The the why questions. Why would God allow this? Why would God do this? They're not going to be answered in this life. But what we can know is that God is purposefully, wisely doing these things to display his attributes And in eternity, for all eternity, as he explains to us why he did what he did, we will be shouting hallelujah, glory to God in the highest. For all eternity, we will be praising him and exalting him for his wisdom, his knowledge, his self-sufficiency, his perfections. Isn't that awesome? I think I've said this to you before. When you ask questions like, is there going to be golf in heaven? You you need to read Romans 11. 
33 through 36, maybe several times in a row. Um, There's a point in which when we think about um, the hereafter, and the Bible says so very little about it, but what Scripture tells us is that it's being with Christ, and it's the Lamb being all the glory, and it's the Lamb being the light, and it's God revealing more and 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 more of his perfections to us for all eternity. And there's never going to be a point where you think, no more. I don't want to see anymore or know anymore. That's what we have to look forward to. In Christ, God is going to reveal more of his majesty and wisdom and knowledge and perfection. Let me make two simple applications before we come to the table. The first is that if if you are a believer, um, I want to encourage you to be praying that God would be showing you more of the weight of his glory. You would be saying, Lord, I I have not seen enough. With Augustine, I, I see the depths, but I cannot see the bottom. Show me more of the depths. Show me, show me more of your wisdom and your knowledge. Show me more of these things so that I can praise you better for them. And then praise him for them. Adoring praise. Humble praise. Exalting praise. If you're not a believer here this morning, I would, I would urge you to pray, maybe for the first time in your life, Lord, I've not seen the riches of your glory. Would you show them to me? He loves to answer prayers like that. He He knows what we need. He wants us to pray prayers like that. And then fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus crucified and risen because that's where you'll find the answer to that prayer. You'll find it at the cross. And you'll find it in everything that God has revealed about what he has done through the Lord Jesus and his atoning sacrifice for sinners. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father, we have not seen, we have not seen enough of the depths of the riches of your wisdom and knowledge. Lord, we pray that you would show us more. Lord, would you open your word to us more? Would you open our hearts to your word more? Would you send your spirit to give us that illumination so that we can see into those depths as you reveal them to us in the Lord Jesus? Lord, forgive us for not praising you with adoring praise and humble praise and exalting praise. Would you help us to do that? We pray now as we come to the table that you would strengthen our hearts in the knowledge of the truth of the redemption that you have given us in Christ so that we might better praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.